Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. We're your hosts, Brad Stahlberg and Steve Magnus. Brad, what's going on, my man? Oh, not so much, Steve. Um, Looking forward to today's conversation with you. We're going to dive into a really important and meaty topic that I think a lot of people experience and probably intuitively sense it's happening in the world and perhaps even to them, but they don't necessarily have the words for. So um, I love being able to put words on things that we all feel, and that's what we're going to try to do today. Yes. And before we get into that, just a reminder, the Growth Equation podcast, which you're listening to right now, is ad-free and community-supported. Help us continue to keep it that way by considering supporting us on Patreon. For as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month, you get access to everything from monthly book clubs to mastermind groups to community Slack channel and signed copies of our latest book, which if you want to support us as well, check out Do Hard Things, which is my latest book and then brad's is the practice of groundness we really think that you'll find some value there so if you want to uh head over to patreon.com slash the growth equation to learn more and join our community you can do so all right so this week we are going to talk about a topic called audience capture and It's on our mind because we just both read an article in a substack called The Prism um, that was titled The Perils of Audience Capture, and we'll include the link in the show notes. But the short of it is as follows. In 2016, there was a 24-year-old young man named Nicholas Perry, and he wanted to go really big online. So he started uploading videos to his YouTube channel, and the videos were all about his passion, which was playing the violin. And then he also slowly but surely began extolling the values of his vegan diet. And for the better part of a year, he went largely unnoticed. Hardly any people subscribed to his YouTube channel or watched these videos. A year later, he abandoned veganism, and he cited some health concerns. And now that he could eat whatever he wants, he started to make videos of himself consuming copious amounts of food while talking to the camera as if having dinner with a friend. And sure enough, unlike the violin and veganism, these videos started to find a big audience. And the people kept egging him and urging him on to eat more and more and more food. Now, fast forward a couple of years and... Nico Otto Avocado, as he's now known, has amassed over 6 million subscribers across his YouTube channels. So he has absolutely hit his goal of going big on the internet. However, he's also gained the better part of 600 pounds. So he is currently morbidly obese and suffers from all sorts of health concerns. There are images of him um, on a CPAP machine just to do his podcast It's really, really, really a wild situation because it's true of someone that wanted an audience so bad that the person ended up getting captured by the audience and going from thin violin playing vegan to morbidly obese, extremely unhealthy YouTube star 
who is known for stunts such as eating every item on the McDonald's menu in one sitting, which he actually did. So the last thing I'll say in setting this up is it reminds me of the ancient Eastern parable of the hungry ghost, um, which is something that I wrote extensively about in the practice of groundedness, where basically the hungry ghost has a very long neck, but he can't absorb any of the food that he eats. So he just keeps eating and eating and eating. And it goes down this super long neck into this enormously bloated belly. And the hungry ghost never gets full. He, he always needs more to feel good. And back in ancient times, this was considered a severe disorder. And of course, today, in no small part, thanks to the internet, social media, the fact that we can all amass these followers and we can all get external validation that we crave, to some extent, most of us, if not all of us, have become hungry ghosts. And in this case, the hungry ghost system, or excuse me, the hungry ghost syndrome literally led this young man to eat himself into a place of ill health just so he could please his audience and get that external validation. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that parable there. Um, so to me, it brings up a couple of interesting points and that are really important here. And the first one I think is around identity, where we often think that our identity is shaped internally. It comes from our values, our beliefs, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality and much of what the psychology and research shows is that we're actually trying to make sense of ourselves and almost like make our inner world and outer world match up. And we often do that by seeing or observing how we interact uh, with different experiences in the outer world. So, for example, in this case, if this individual on YouTube is getting rewarded, incentivized for eating lots of food and behaving in a kind of crazy manner, our inner world moves to match that. Our identity moves to match and, and reinforce that. And I think what we have is a couple things going on is first, we have this weird dynamic that we've never faced before, where we have an outer world that is essentially endless, global, comparative to everybody, and always on <laughs> in the sense of social media, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, all those those good things, email, even Facebook, all everything online, um, that we're not really psychologically prepared for and that we don't, our inner world kind of doesn't know how to make sense of. And that that's a really big issue because, you know, maybe let's step back a couple generations and think, well, how did we make sense of who we we were in the past? Well, it's pretty simple. You had a local community that kind of sent you signals on who you are, what's important, where you belong. You had your family, maybe your like church or religious community. If we go back a couple hundred years, you have your, you know, if we go back thousands of years, you have your tribe all of that good stuff, but it's very locally dominated that since, and then you have, you know, in addition to like that experience, you have the maybe female family or societal or tribal stories that you tell 
which tell you what's important, who you are, where you belong, all that good stuff. So you could kind of make the world add up, I guess is what I'm getting at. But now we live in a world where it's really freaking hard to make the world add up. So we all feel a little lost and fragmented. So we all go looking for like what I'd call is the cheap, easy candy version of how do we fill these holes and like figure out who we are and like achieve these kind of psychological needs or desires of like status, significance, direction, etc. And if we don't have control over that, we lead into these areas like we you just described in this article, which is like you get captured. Right. And, and we you- think of audience capture, that's the pun, as you trying to capture an audience. And um, this is the opposite, right? This is the audience capturing the per- the person. And your point on personality, um, I had to go Google for it to find the exact quote, reminds me of something from Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh, one of our, or both of our favorite books. Uh, and Robert Persig wrote, each machine has its own unique personality, which probably could be defined as the intuitive sum total of everything you know and feel about it. This personality constantly changes, usually for the worse, but sometimes surprisingly for the better. And it is the personality that is the real object of motorcycle maintenance. The new ones start out as good-looking strangers, and dependent on how they are treated, they degenerate rapidly into bad-acting grouches or even cripples, or else they turn into healthy, good-natured, long-lasting friends. And like so much in that book, I think Robert Persig there is writing not only about motorcycles, but about all of us. So we do start out, at least I believe, with an innocent, and humans are generally kind underneath everything, but then we go out in the world and our personality develops not as some inside game, but based on what other people reflect back to us. And on the one hand, we're these super complex species that I just said, I think have some intuitive goodness inside of us. On the other hand, we're not that different from a lab rat that hits the lever to get more sugar water and dopamine. And in today's day and age, followers, validation, hype is sugar water and dopamine. So if that means eating the whole McDonald's menu and putting your health at risk, it's the extent some people go to. Um, I never thought that my brain would go here, but here we are. I think it's very similar to performance enhancing drugs in sport. Like if validation comes from winning and you need to win because that's what your audience expects of you and suddenly you become the person that has to win, then yeah, you're going to eat the whole McDonald's menu. You're going to break the rules and and inject testosterone. You're going to plagiarize the book, what have you. So that's the problem. I think all of us face it to some extent. Those with more of a public profile probably face it more. What's the solution? How do you guide the evolution of your own personality knowing that there are all of these forces pulling and prying on it? And in today's attention economy, follower, retweet-like world, it can be really hard not to become at the very least, a poor man or a poor person's version of this YouTube influencer who lost who he really was and became something that the audience wanted him to be. Yeah. So I think the problem is, you know, I think it's it's worse the bigger your audience goes because that pull becomes stronger. But I think this is also why if you look at the data on younger kids or adolescents 
why they're experiencing loneliness, anxiety, etc., to a much higher degree than we have for that age group, um, you know, for a very long time. Uh, because the world is kind of set up for this incentive cycle that almost becomes self-reinforcing, where the incentives and rewards are all this kind of what I'd call, again, the cheap and easy sources of validation, status, uh, comparison. So what what's the deal to it? Well, I think I think ultimately, like there are some very strong societal changes that should occur because some of these pools are are like, yeah, we can sit here and be like, oh, you need to individually do these things and we should. But the reality is that it's only going to be a bigger and bigger problem as we move from, as I said, a local society to like a global comparison, always on, always uh, comparing, um, or worse, when we move into the so-called metaverse, whatever that thing is. Um, (laughs) So I think there's like the societal problems, but then, you know, we can tackle that maybe or maybe leave it for another part. But then there's also like the personal stuff. And on the personal stuff, I think it really is like getting clear. So clarity and then like setting up constraints so that you are not falling into that trap as much as you, you know, may be pulled to. And I think on that clarity part, it's really like setting down and being like defining what matters, who actually matters in your life, whose opinions matter, what game you're playing. And when I mean what game you're playing, I mean that like we're all going to seek like status, incentives, rewards, identity somewhere. But in the case of the YouTube person, like he's playing the game of like likes, follows, etc. But we get to choose like whether we play that game. And that's where we get our sense of our sense of well-being, our sense of status, etc. We can just as easily get our sense of status from, I don't know, being, uh, you know, the best weightlifter we can or the best runner we can or, you know, uh being a nice, decent human being. And I think like getting clarity on where that, where you're kind of deriving that from is step one for like preventing this from happening with you. I think the other question that everyone can ask themselves before any given action. So certainly before an Instagram post or a Facebook post or a tweet, but just more generally in life is, am I doing this because I think it is going to elicit a certain response in people that will make them like me, follow me, give me status? Or am I doing this, saying this, writing this because I genuinely believe it or I'm curious or I want to engage in conversation with other people about it? And there's always going to be a push and pull between those things. We're a social species. It's just in our nature to crave validation. But I think that if validation is the leading force, then it's probably worth experimenting with resisting and not doing the thing lest you lease out your personality to whatever the so-called audience wants and then suddenly you you live a very inauthentic version of life or in the case of of this YouTube influencer Nikado Avocado you become 
you become someone that you never thought that you'd be or that you don't necessarily want to be all in the name of trying to get fulfillment from other people. You get captured by the audience. So here's what I'd like to know, Brad, from your experience, you know, going from, you know, we both went from no real audience to having, you know, not a crazy audience, but people follow us and blah, blah, blah is it can be very tempting to just start crafting your messages for what goes or will go quote unquote viral on, you know, with your audience or giving them what they need. And we've crafted an audience, hopefully that like wants smart, nuanced, et cetera stuff. But it can also be very easy to just like send the candy into the world <laughs> which creates like buzz, maybe even outrage or like says something slightly controversial, which gets those likes. So how in your head, like as because I know we've talked about this, how do you prevent from like just going always to the candy? I do two things. The first is occasionally I call the audience and I do that by pointing out something that a lot of people like that I think is just batshit crazy and absurd. And then a lot of people that were in my audience leave my audience. So an example is I have no problem calling out Joe Rogan's pseudo babble on just about everything. And every time I do that, I lose, I don't know, 50 to 100 Twitter followers, like like clockwork, you know? If I call out Joe Rogan four times a year, four times a year within two hours after that tweet or post, I lose 50 to 100 followers. And that's fine. Those aren't people that I want in my audience. Um, so that's one way to do it. There are some other examples of that. I think that's, that's the most striking one of the calling effect. So that's like what I'd call the bottom line, right? Cost reduction or getting people out of the audience that I think will make me a worse version of me. The top line is how do I gain people while still maintaining myself is I ask myself what I want to say and what I actually want to say and what's the message, and then I craft it as enticing of a way as possible. So, for example, there's a million different ways to talk about consistency, right? But I like to say small steps lead to big gains because it's simple, it contrasts small and big, it's a little counterintuitive, and I know that tweet's going to do really well. That does a lot better than consistency is really important, Am I thinking that when I tweet the latter, not the former? Absolutely. Does it change the message? No. So I guess it, it, it you know, I, you've never asked me this directly, so I'm thinking through this on the fly, but I guess what it is, is the message has got to be accurate in what I actually want to say, but the way that I craft it, I'm absolutely trying to think about what's going to resonate with people, what's going to go viral, so on and so forth. And it's not without its own pitfalls. I mean, we're going to talk about this in part two of this podcast next week on how the medium is the message itself. So would it be better for everyone's intellect if instead of saying small steps lead to big gains, I wrote a 5,000 word evidence-based piece on the value of consistency? Absolutely. Would anyone read it? No. And I think that what I'm doing is to a, a lesser extent, the same thing that most publishers do with book titles, magazines and newspapers do with the titles of articles and essays, is you write something that's appealing, that has a chance to compete in the attention economy, 
and then hopefully the message is good. Now, again, what we're going to talk about next week in part two is, is there a degrading of our collective brain <laughs> that happens in the attention economy because we are so focused on the pithy, even though sometimes the pithy isn't the substantial or it doesn't challenge us in the same way? Yeah, that's interesting. I like that. And I, I tend to agree. I like the calling of the audience. Um, and I, I call it like picking your spots to say something not controversial, but something that you believe that is, as you outline there, um, that might go against someone. So here's a question I have on this, and I'm I'm not meaning meaning to put you on the spot, but this is these are things I struggle with as well. Is what about the topics? So audience capture is you're getting captured by your audience, and you're you're crafting your message to essentially satisfy them, so you become more like your audience. What about the topics? where you believe something that maybe a decent, not like the 50, 100 people on Joe Rogan, but a sizable portion of your audience may strongly feel otherwise and, and controversial. And I'm going to give you a hypothetical here, not saying this is what you are, but it's the topic that comes to mind is let's take, you know, you're a more progressive person who lives in Asheville, progressive city. Let's say you wanted to make a stand on like trans athletes competing and you wanted to go against like the more progressive stand and say they shouldn't be allowed at all. Like, how do you wrestle with that? Well, this goes against maybe a portion of my audience. Do I say this? Do I not? Do I tackle this topic? I would just stay away from that topic because it's not core to what I do. And I don't think it's very important to what I do. It's important to a lot of people, but not to what I do. And it's not important to me in my life. If I had a trans kid or if I had a psi kid that was a state champion that lost to a trans kid, I'd probably feel differently. But because I don't see a clear, easy answer and because my belief isn't strong enough to validate any answer and I don't care enough to validate any answer, I stay away from it. So the converse of that is guns because a lot of people like guns and Asheville's progressive, but it's still the self. One of my best friends here likes guns. Can't fucking believe it, but he does. And I have no problem taking that stance because I have a lot more skin in the game. I have a kid and school shootings terrify me. And I think gun culture is absurd. I mean, people listening to this podcast aren't going to like hearing that. Um, so yeah, I guess like it depends on if there's a, a, a reason to it, because I have all kinds of beliefs that are probably like going to upset some people. But I, I for, for me to go on a lightning rod issue, I have to have a really strong conviction that I have the right answer. And B, I have to... Um, I have to have some skin in the game. And on the trans athlete thing in particular, I mean, I think to an extent, both of us have kind of done it. Like we've said that it's absurd to say that testosterone doesn't impact sports performance. That is just basic science. And a lot of people, when we say stuff like that, they, they don't follow us. And they say that we're heteronormative part of the patriarchy. And to them, I'd say, well, why is testosterone banned from all sport? Because it improves performance. Now, that's very different than saying that trans athletes shouldn't compete. I don't have the answer to that question. Um, and if I did, then yeah, I'd say it. But I actually don't, on that particular issue, like I don't think that there's a, a good answer, so I stay away.
I don't know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. No, I'm just interested in how you wrestle with those things because there are, and I think that's what it is. The way I kind of look at it is in the past, I think early on before we had a big audience, I'd, I'd take on more controversial things, probably easier. Um, but as your audience grows, I think it's almost like you have this threshold that needs to be met or crossed. And it's almost that threshold of conviction, importance to you, and like, can you contribute meaningfully? And once it crosses that threshold, regardless of the topic, it's like, okay, I'm going to say something. But, you know, I think that, I mean, so this is interesting, and maybe it'll be interesting for listeners. If not, I'm sorry, at least it's interesting for for me. I, I think I could size up our audience really well. And... I'm going to say what I think our audience is, and then I'm going to think like, well, does that really reflect who I am? So I think our audience is probably politically left-leaning but moderate, people that care about politics insofar it has an effect on their life, but they don't treat politics as a sport. I think that they are wanting something more than the supplements and the hacks and the eight ways to get better in eight days kind of programs that dominate a lot of this. I think a lot of people are striving truly to be excellent, to be the best in their field or to be the best version of themselves. And I think that they want something that is evidence-based and harder than the woo-woo stuff, but also that is not just like, you know, discipline is freedom, wake up at four in the morning, you have to crush yourself every day. And I think because of that, we probably have more leeway when we say things that people disagree with. Like, I can't imagine there are any Trumpers listening to this podcast, but there are probably some conservatives. But because, like, A, we don't treat politics as the be-all, end-all, and B, our audience by nature is people that want nuanced viewpoints in both and, and it depends, we hold on to those people. Now, if the... If Donald Trump captures all conservatives, well, then we're not going to hold on to those people. But that's their problem, not ours. Um, And I think some progressives, like some super liberals probably are like, oh, like these two white guys, like what do they know? And they're not going to be in our audience. So i that's our audience. Would I define myself similarly? Yeah, probably. I'm probably a little bit more willing to shoot from the hip in real life than I am publicly. And I think that's actually a good thing that there's that public constraint because I'm not always at my best when I shoot from the hip. Yeah, no, I so I think I, I think you're slightly off. I think we have more conservative conservative and even like Trump people than you anticipate in our audience, because I think our audience like and the reason I say that is I think Does your our brother audience, listen to our podcast now. What's that? Does your brother listen to our podcast oh, no. now? No way. No way ever. But the reason I say that is because I think we, we're we not a political podcast. So I think, it, and we shouldn't be, and we aren't. But I, I think what that means is we're performance-based. So you're going to have a lot of random like coaches or athletes who maybe live in the middle of the South who are, you know, maybe voted for Trump and are conservative and whatever have you. And like come here for those the performance side because they separate that identity, the political identity from their performance identity. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. That'd be interesting. We're not going to do polling on it, um, but it, it would be interesting. I mean, that's another broader topic, and, and we're going to talk 
a little bit about that in part two, but um, just like how polarization used to be along one line, which was like politics and your views on the economy. But now polarization has grouped these things together, where if you're a Trumper, you're also more likely to believe in supplements and think that COVID vaccines are harmful. And as a result of that, I think that it does kind of spill over into everything. And I think that's really, really, really problematic. And sadly, it's in the best interest of the politicians doing it, because once your identity is linked to them and you're in their in-group, then you're going to follow them wherever they go. And that's true on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, there's a fascinating uh, research around identity fusion, especially in in politics that, you know, we were talking about identity and, and audience capture, but the same can happen with leaders, groups, etc., as you essentially become the group because you get essentially captured by the group. Yeah. Um, so. and it, but that can work the other way. And in, in the the substack, the prism substack that we discussed, the, the writer mentions this. And the only reason I'm not saying the writer's name is his pen name is Gerwinder. I doubt that's his real name. Maybe it is. Um, but Again, we're going to link it because it's a phenomenal piece and, and everyone should read it. We don't know the guy that wrote it. We just think it's really good. Um, but he also talked about how that can work the other way, how your audience can make you a better version of you if you go out and you find the right audience. And that mirrors something that we've always talked about, which is like the you become the people that you surround yourself with. And more and more, I think we need to realize that that's also true digitally. So that means calling the audience being selective about whose work you follow and who you engage with, being selective about who you want to go out there and, and have in your audience. I mean, it'd be easy for me to go uber progressive and get the the very angry Twitter progressives to follow me, but I don't necessarily want to become an angry person, an angry progressive. So like that's not my that's not my my goal. So I don't do that, even though I know that there are things that could lead to to growth. So where does that leave us? I think that for all of us, we should be aware that, yes, in many aspects of life, we want to capture an audience, but we also have to be aware that those audiences capture us and they can change us. It's really important to have some constraints about how you make sure that you're showing up more on the side of authenticity than just giving other people what they want. And also to realize that your audience can influence you for the positive, not just the negative, if you craft it in the right way. So. That's part one, which is more on the individual level. Next week, we're going to discuss another essay, this one from Ezra Klein, on more broadly how it's not just audiences that are capturing us, it's also the technologies themselves and how spending time using certain technologies changes your personality and changes your identity in ways that you might not realize. Uh, this is a topic that was first written about in the mid-1900s by Marshall McLuhan and Neil Postman, the two media theorists. And um, I mean, Steve, you know I think this. I think that their books are going to be, if things continue down the path they're going down, their books are going to be like, um, I don't know, Romeo and Juliet, or like name that book from 400 years ago that people know by name, because it's just such a prescient look at how technologies change us simply by using them. And um, we're going to talk about that next week.
Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.